0: Let's open up in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1. We of course are continuing in our series, Identity Issues, God's Glory in Us Through Christ's Work for Us. I want to say very quickly, if you weren't here last week and you've been following us in this series, uh, last week was Pivotal. last week was pivotal. Uh, The title of the message was God's glory and our joy. God's glory and our joy. And it really kind of brought together a lot of this stuff about identity and and what it's all about. So if you've been following us in the series and you missed last week, you need to get last week. Okay. We really want to hang everything on God's glory and our joy subsequent to that. So you can get it on the website for free. Get on iTunes. You go to the resource today, uh, table today and grab it. But make sure that you you get that one way or another. We're going to be looking at verse 10 this morning. Remember, we're just taking it one verse at a time until we get through to verse 14. The title of today's message is Chaos and Coronation. Chaos and Coronation. I don't know what it means, but it sounded cool to me. I made it up. And we're just going to read, as we've been doing each week for a while now, verses 3 through 9, which we covered last week, verse 9, and then we'll get into verse 10 which is this week's text in a bit. But let's just read and let's, let's really let our hearts rejoice as we read again these wonderful truths that we've been reading together every single week and learning about. Paul the Apostle in Ephesians 1.3 says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. And even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he's poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He's so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ. A plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And then verse 10 for this week. And this is the plan. At the right time, He'll bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would cause our hearts to rejoice at the reading and the preaching, the hearing and the comprehension of your word. Lord, these things that we just read, these are the most glorious things the world has ever been told. This divine revelation is the most earth-changing stuff that has ever been heard by the ears of men and women and children. And we ask that as your church gathered here today and others who would come to hear and to see, we ask that these things wouldn't be lost on us, Lord. But these things would transform us. And these things, these truths, would thrill our hearts and we're told today that there is coming a day where everything will be subject to your authority, where Christ in this world, you will rule and reign visibly, you will right every wrong, you heal every heart, and you'll restore all things for your glory and according to the plan of the Father. We just ask that our hearts would be thrilled by that and that we'd be encouraged by that and the difficulty of our lives when we're facing uncertainty and fear and loss and cancer and heartbreak and all these other things that we face as people, that our hearts would rejoice in your place on the throne. You do a wonderful work in us today. that would cause us to live in light of your ruling and reigning. That the fullness of our lives would be brought under your authority for your glory and your good pleasure. And so, Lord, please anoint me now to teach and preach for your purposes and your fame. Pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, according to verse nine, which we dealt with last week, God has a plan. Okay, you've heard that before. God has a plan. Well well, verse nine says that. God has a plan. It says three things about this plan. First of all, it calls this plan a mystery. Now when we talk about a mystery in the New Testament sense, we're not talking about something that can't be known or we're not talking about an enigma nor are we talking about uh, something that's got to be figured out through human ingenuity like a mystery novel or a mystery film. We're not talking about that. In the New Testament sense, a mystery is simply, simply something that was once hidden but is now revealed. Something that was once hidden but is now revealed. When the New Testament talks about a mystery, it's not that it's something incomprehensible, but rather something undiscoverable by the wisdom of humanity, okay? It's not incomprehensible, not that sort of mystery, but it was undiscoverable in and of ourselves. It had to be revealed to us by God. It is an issue of divine revelation. This mystery about the plan regarding Christ is an issue of divine revelation. It is something that God has shown us and is showing us in Scripture. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan. So it's a mystery, number one. And number two, it's about Christ. And that was really the subject of last week's sermon, and we got to get that. That the plan is not about us. We like everything to be about us, don't we? Or am I the only one? Okay, we just like everything to be about us. That just seems to be a core component of our sinful nature. We like it to be about us and we try to make it about us and we get upset and defensive and mad and angry when it's not about us. And much of our lives and much of our toil and energy and pursuits are spent in an effort to make things about us and the way we want them to be about us. And the thing about God's plan is it's not about you. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. Now we are a part of the plan and that's good. We're not cut out of it. We're a part of it. You've heard people say to you before, God loves you and he's got a wonderful plan for your life. That's that's true, but that's not, that's not the truest way to say. The truest way to say is God loves his son and has a wonderful plan for his son and we're a part of it. By grace, we're caught up in it. We're included in the plan of the father regarding the son. So, God has His plan. It's a mystery. It's got to be revealed to us. It's not unknowable. It just needs divine revelation. And it's not about us, it's about Jesus. And the third and final thing about the plan is it's for God's own pleasure. It's not for us. Though God does work all things together for our good, that is not His primary purpose. His primary purpose is His glory, His pleasure, His enjoyment. We certainly benefit from this plan, but we only benefit from this plan in so much as we belong to Christ through faith and repentance. That we've been united to Christ, as the text says. Verses 6 and 11 speak of that. And so when we put it that way, when we say, well, it's a mystery that we couldn't figure out ourselves, and, and it's not about us, and it's not for us, then that, that's kind of an affront to a lot of our cultural assumptions. That's kind of an insult to our cultural exaltation of human wisdom and self-orientation and egocentrism. It wasn't discerned by us. It's not about us. It's not ultimately for us. Well, that just seems downright un-American. We want to be able to figure it out we want to be able to make it about us and we want it to serve our purposes and pleasure. But what the text has been teaching us is that God's plan is revealed to us only by grace. We are part of it only by grace and we benefit from it only by grace. God has now revealed to us by grace his mysterious plan regarding Christ that we're part of by grace. A plan to fulfill his own good pleasure that benefits us by grace. And then verse 10 goes on to explain the plan. It says in verse 10, and this is a plan. At the right time, he, the Father, will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth. So this plan, God's plan regarding Jesus, which is for the Father's good pleasure, is that at the right time, Gosh, there's a difficulty with it. When is the right time? It seems like God's time is never the right time. Right? Because here's when the right time is. The right time is now. Right? Lord, I, I got difficulties now. <laughs> Problems now. Issues now. Now's the right time. It simply says at the right time. And then we would like the disciples would say, well, when's the time? Is now the time? And Jesus says, say, it's none of your business. Acts chapter 1. The disciples, is now the time that you're gonna restore the kingdom to Israel? Don't worry about the time, none of your business to know the time. So, when is the time? I I have no idea. But at the right time, it's gonna be on time, at the right time, everything is going to be under the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, there seems to be this degree of chaos in the world. And I would argue an ever-increasing degree of chaos. But there is coming a time of coronation where everything is under the authority of Jesus Christ as king. Last week, in light of that, we we thought a little bit about Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Which say, say this, through Christ, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made things that we can see and things that we can't see. Everything was created through Christ and for Christ talked about that last week. Everything was created through Christ and for Christ, so that we begin to understand that we exist, we exist for God's glory and God's pleasure and not our own, right? Everything was created through Christ and for Christ. It's about Him. It's for Him. We are created beings, created for God's glory God's pleasure for Christ. We, as we talked about last week, are contingent as creatures. We only exist because God, through Christ, spoke us into existence. We're not only contingent, but we are dependent. We only continue to exist because God, through Christ, sustains us. Hebrews chapter 1. Christ sustains all things by the power of his word. And we are not only creatures who are contingent independent, dependent, but we are creatures who are subordinate. We not only exist because he spoke us into existence, we not only continue to exist because he sustains us, but we exist for his good pleasure, for his glory. So that the, the main revelation that we've been getting is this. If we want to understand ourselves as creatures who are contingent, dependent, and subordinate. It stands to reason that if we want to understand ourselves and gain a sense of identity, we have to look upward. Right? We talked about this. And the folly of humanity is that we try to look inward. If I could just search myself and understand myself more and explore myself and my pains and my follies and my passions, if I could just get closer to who I am, then I'll understand who I am. When in reality, Scripture would say we are creatures, we're created, who are contingent, dependent, and subordinate. So to understand self, we must look upward, not inward. Nor outward to compare ourselves to others. We exist for his good pleasure as part of his plan. And that's been revealed to humanity through Scripture. And through general revelation to a certain degree. So the problem with us, the, the, the challenge with humanity is not a lack of information. Rather, it's flight and rebellion. It's that we want to run from ultimate authority and we rebel from this idea that it's not about us and that we're subordinates. So we want to be the, the captains of our own ships, the captains of our own destiny. We want to rule and reign for ourselves and on behalf of ourselves. And once that is rectified... Through repentance and faith, repenting of rebellion against God, putting our faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross, according to the truth of the gospel, once that's rectified, then we can begin to live rightly. Now we start to live for the glory of God. We start to live for something bigger than our selfishness. And can I get a witness that in that is freedom? We start to live for something bigger than our self-absorbed, egocentric selves. One who's more beautiful than us, more desirable, greater than we could ever dream, Christ. We start to live for him and his glory and his pleasure. And as we talked about last week, it, it, living for him and his glory and his pleasure doesn't mean that we live without pleasure. God is not a cosmic killjoy, Right? We are called to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the understanding of our Christianity. Through Christ, we're to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We're to enjoy Jesus, as we say here at Reality. His gifts and his goodness. He created all things for our enjoyment. And that is part of God's pleasure, is us taking pleasure in him. God rejoices in us. As we've been adopted into his family and we're in Christ. And as we rejoice in him, God rejoices. Here's the interesting thing about that. We are as Christians to be those who enjoy Jesus, his gifts and his goodness, and rejoice in him in the midst of a horrifically perverse and broken world. There's a difficulty with that. And what verse 10 is getting at for us this week is why we can, as Christians, thoroughly enjoy Jesus and his creation even in the midst of everything that we see going on in the world. Verse 10 tells us why we can enjoy Jesus and his goodness and his gifts, guilt-free, even in the midst of everything going on in the world. And what's going on in the world? Famine. It's people starving in our own city disasters genocide ethnic cleansing injustice perversion corruption exploitation human exploitation and if as members of the human race and yet members of the body of Christ if our determination was to merely enjoy Jesus, his gifts and his goodness, to the exclusion of the world, then we would be guilty of some sort of disengaged, anesthetized escapism. Some, some disengaged, anesthetized, not feeling the reality of the world, Escapism. I'm just going to hide from it, enjoy Jesus and the things he gives me. It wouldn't be a life on mission. It wouldn't be a life that is true to what God has called us to do in this world. We would be those who would say, children are being trafficked, people are starving, ethnic cleansing is happening, millions are suffering, gross injustice is tolerated, and perversion is rampant, but I'm just here enjoying Jesus and his gifts and his goodness to the glory of God. And, and that's not the way it's supposed to be. There's all this brokenness out there. And I'm, I'm just enjoying in here to the glory of God. That's not the way it is. Because, as verse 10 says, at the right time, the Father will bring everything together, will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. It's that future promise that is the basis for our present peace. It's the future promise that there is coming a day. That is the basis for our presence, present peace. And our present pursuits. It's why we can. That future reality of what's going to happen with regards to Christ. Is why we can enjoy him now. Guilt free. Enjoy his gifts now. Enjoy his goodness now. And. And pursue his purposes in the world because of what's going to happen in the future. You see, what this verse is telling us is that everything is not going to continue as is. Everything in the world is not going to continue as is. Now, now some would take that and say, that's right, because I believe in this idea of, of progressivism. And a, a modernistic humanism where, where people are going to continue to progress and evolve and discover to the point where we are going to solve all the problems of the world. And that's been a major, a major ideology of humanity, especially espoused through the modern period. Now there's, that, that idea is waning a little bit as we're in a postmodern period and we're saying, you know what? We didn't have the answers. We couldn't figure it out. But there's still this optimism, especially among millennials, 18 to 30-year-olds, who would say, we can change the world. Not just we can, but we're going to change the world. We're going to make the world a better place for future generations. Scripture doesn't say that we're going to do that. Scripture says rather there's coming a day where the Father's going to do that under the authority of Christ. But nobody can look soberly and honestly at the world, at the whole world, and the things that go on in it and say, hey, it's getting better. The last century was the most bloody century the world has ever known. In fact, some of those who have the best grasp on history are the most pessimistic about the future. There was a a historian, um, famous British historian. He taught at Oxford, Cambridge, and Trinity. And uh, he was such a famous historian. He was knighted, right, in England, which I don't know. Elton John is knighted, so it's not that big of a deal. (laughs) But a historian who was knighted, and his name was George Norman Clark, And he gave an address on May 16th, 1944 at Cambridge University and he said this, listen. He said, there's there's no secret and no plan in history to be discovered. No mystery, he would say. There's no secret and there's no plan in history to be discovered. I do not believe that any future consummation could make sense of the irrationalities of preceding ages. There's no plan. There's no mystery. There's no coming together of these things in a way that is going to set right everything that has gone wrong. Those who know history best seem often to be most pessimistic about the future. But you see, Scripture has a different view. What Scripture is telling us today is there actually is a secret. It's called a mystery. And it has been revealed in Christ and in Scripture. It's a plan regarding Christ that involves a final future consummation where everything is brought together and makes sense and is set right in and under Jesus. Scripture tells a different story. If you're going to applaud, applaud. <laughs> to the glory of God. And what, what's happening is that all of creation is longing for this. All of creation, though they might not be able to identify, though they might not know it's consummation in Christ, all of creation is looking for this finality, this setting right, this coming together of everything that's been broken by sin throughout history. All of creation longs for it. And what we do, if we don't, not revealed to us in Christ, then what we do is we have these misplaced hopes. Right? We have these little bumper stickers that say hope but nope. (laughs) We hope in systems and governments and finances and ideologies and pseudo-saviors. And the evidence of us putting our hope in all these places is that there's this deep level brokenness within us from sin flight and rebellion from God, and now we have this longing for resolve. Romans chapter 8 speaks about it and says, What we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. And we believers also groan. Even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, because we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as His adopted children, including the new bodies that He has promised us. Anybody need a new body? More than you think. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something, we don't yet have it. We must wait patiently and confidently. You see, Scripture resounds with the fact that there is a plan, that history is going somewhere. Everything was created through Christ and for Christ, or as it can be translated, is going toward Christ. He's the beginning, and he's the end. He's the cause and the reason. He's the Lord of lords and the King of kings who will right every wrong and restore all things. And it's all about Jesus. And Scripture then is actually really clear about the future as it pertains to Christ and everything being submitted to his authority. We see in Scripture, number one, that Jesus will return in evidential power and glory. Listen, Scripture spoke about the first coming of Jesus Christ. Scripture speaks eight times more frequently about his second coming. If you're a Christian, you believe that Jesus came once and died in your place on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead, right? And ascended unto heaven and is exalted there. You also must believe that Jesus is coming again. It's explicit in scripture. It's spoken to more frequently than his first coming. You're only a Christian because you've put your faith in the historical act of Jesus Christ. You also must put your faith in the coming of Jesus Christ. Scripture says that every eye will see at that time. Matthew 24. And they, the world, will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Jesus is going to come back with evidential power and glory. Secondly, Jesus will be the visible king over all the earth. Jesus will be ruling and reigning on the earth. Zechariah 14.9 says, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, there'll be one Lord. His name alone will be worshipped. It's not going to be any more banter back and forth. Who's the true God? Jesus is going to be on the throne. Every eye will have seen his return. Matthew 25, Jesus speaking, says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Okay? talking about judgment of the nations. Revelation 19, speaking of Jesus at his return, on his robe and at his thigh was written this title, King of Kings and Lord of all Lords. So Jesus will return in evidential power and glory. Jesus will be the visible king over all the earth. Thirdly, Jesus will rule the world with immediacy and finality. Immediacy and finality. You see, now it appears that there's chaos and we see things happen and we say, God, why don't you do something about that? Why don't you intervene directly in that right now? And yet we're in this this time where God is drawing humanity to repentance by his kindness. And yet those who refuse that, it says in Romans 3, are storing up wrath for themselves. But God is patient. Not wishing that any should perish, but there is coming a day when he will rule the world with immediacy and finality. Daniel 7, speaking of Jesus, says he was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that the people of every race and nation and language will obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Revelation 19, speaking of Jesus at his second coming, says, from his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God the Almighty like juice flowing from a wine press. There's coming a day where there will be justice. And only Jesus can administer justice. Only Jesus judges righteously. And he'll do so. Revelation 11 says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices shouting in heaven, saying, The world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. There's coming a day where all of creation will say, What was once chaos has become coronation. What's once seemed out of control is now submitted to, To King Jesus as he's on his throne in the space-time continuum. Number four, Jesus would be recognized by Lord as Lord, excuse me, by every person. Philippians two. Speaking of Christ, as God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's coming a day where every human being will confess Christ is Lord, either in adoration and acceptance through faith and repentance in the truth of the gospel, or in subjection and judgment because they've rejected the work of Christ upon the cross. But every knee will bow. Number five, Jesus will banish Satan and his minions. This ought to be good news to you, and me. Revelation twenty one, uh, Revelation twenty. Excuse me. Says then the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever, because Satan is a liar and pathetic. You will be thrown into the lake of fire by Christ himself. I like to say, if, I mean, does anybody here have a past or is it just me again? Anybody have a past? You guys are so shy. Like three people are like, this is becoming part of your past. You're lying in church. Does anybody have a past? Oh, man. Does, that, does, does anybody ever feel as though Satan is reminding them of their past? Right? We, I, I love this saying, next time Satan reminds you of your horrible past, remind him of his horrific future. <laughs> Number six, Jesus will vanquish death, sorrow, and pain. Revelation 21, speaking of Christ says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow, or crying, or pain. All these things are gone forever. When Christ is ruling and reigning, all those things will be gone forever. And in that day, number seven, Jesus will be the only one we serve and worship. There's not gonna be any more competition for our attention. Revelation 22 says no longer will there be a curse upon anything for the throne of God and the lamb will be there and his servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads. Listen to me. Nobody's going to get their identity wrong anymore. Nobody's going to be overwhelmed by the hurtful words of another anymore. Nobody's going to be ruled by the rejection of their parents anymore or the rejection or exclusion of their peers anymore because we're going to see Jesus and his name is going to be written on our foreheads and we will worship and serve him only. All things will be together in him. Number eight, Jesus will be the only one worshipped, period. Revelation chapter 5. John the Revelator says, Then I looked, and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne, and of the living beings and the elders, a representation of the church. And they sang in a mighty chorus, saying, Worthy is the Lamb, who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. The sharks. They sing blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Amen. Number nine. Jesus will make all things new under his authority. It says in Revelation 21. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. What's it going to be like when we hear those words? The one sitting on the throne. The one before whom we have repented. And the one in whom we have placed our faith. The one from whom we draw all of our identity. The one who we will see face to face is going to say, look, I am making all things new. And he said to me, write this down. For what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it's finished. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And number 10, Jesus will include all who are his in these final blessings. Revelation 21 again says, to all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings and I will be their God and they will be my children. You see, the plan is not about us, but we're included in it. It's not for us, But we benefit from it because by faith we're united to Christ. Because by faith we've been adopted into his family. Because before the foundation of the world, he loved us and chose us and predestined us to be his own. So that at the end, all these blessings of the king ruling and reigning from the throne and making all things brand new will be part of our inheritance. But that's next week's sermon. But listen to this homecoming spoken of in Jeremiah 31. Here's our homecoming, okay? When everything is consummated in Christ, it says they will come home and sing songs of joy on the heights of Jerusalem. They will be radiant because of the Lord's good gifts and abundant crops of grain, new wine and olive oil, and the healthy flocks in the herds. Their life, speaking of us, our life will be like a water garden and all of our sorrows will be gone. The young women are going to dance for joy and the men, old and young, will join in the celebration. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and exchange their sorrow for rejoicing. The priests will enjoy abundance. And my people will feast on my good gifts. I, the Lord, have spoken. This is the mysterious plan of God regarding Christ. All things were created through him. But humanity has rebelled. And all things have been broken. But All things were created for him. And he himself went to the cross in our place that we might have the forgiveness of sins and be restored to fellowship with God that we might experience all things coming together in him. That future reality that we just spoke of has present implications because of God's past actions. We were chosen and predestined and adopted the past work of God. So we now belong To Christ, the present identity of the Christian. Christ who will rule, the future hope of the church. But just because it's a future hope, doesn't mean it doesn't have present implications. All those things of Christ ruling and reigning means this: that anxiety and fear are undermined by the future hope of Christ. Listen to what Isaiah 35 would say to us in this case. It would say, with this news, strengthen those who have tired hands, and encourage those who have weak knees. Say to those with fearful hearts, right? Those whose brothers are lying in the hospital. Those whose daughters are sick. Those who are losing their mobility, losing Their finances, losing their security, those who are rejected by everyone else. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong and do not fear, for your God is coming. Your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He is coming to save you. So, because we know that future truth, our hearts are not overwhelmed by present atrocities, they're not overwhelmed. Because we know there's coming a day of reckoning. A day of judgment where he'll right every wrong. Where he will restore all things. Where Christ himself will say, behold. And I imagine him lifting those arms with the wounds that are still there. Saying, behold. I make everything new. Because that day is promised. We can enjoy Jesus' today even in the face of heartbreak difficulty corruption atrocities but it's not just that anxiety and fear are undermined it's also and this is the last thing I'll say that idleness and purposelessness are neutralized because we are currently his because he's, he's already our king right because a kingdom has come it's already here. It's not yet fully here, right? The kingdom is already and not yet because it's present and future, but because those of us who have repented and put of our sins and put our faith in Christ, because he's already our Lord and King, we seek to bring everything under his authority now, okay? Here's our major point of application. Because he's already our King, we seek to bring everything under his authority now. My marriage, I want it under the authority of Christ. I want it submitted to Christ. My finances, I want them submitted to the Lordship of Christ. My recreation, my business, my relationships, my hurts, my pains, my angers, I want them all now submitted to the authority of Jesus Christ because I don't only have a future hope, I have a present reality of Christ in me. And when he was exalted, when he ascended, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he was already exalted on high. Therefore, set your minds on heaven where Christ is, Colossians 3 would say. And bring everything in submission to his kingship and that starts with us and with the community and then it moves out into the world in mission okay we're not an enclave we're not a christian ghetto we don't just submit ourselves to christ and then hunker down and wait for him to come again we move into the world as what ambassadors of the King. Representatives, ministers of reconciliation, salt and light, sent ones, disciple makers. When Jesus had baptized them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, bring them under the authority of Christ. Who? The nations, he said. Where do we go? We go to the nations. Who will go to the nations? We go to the nations and we make disciples of men and women and children to bring them now under the authority of Jesus Christ that we might see present restoration. It's not only that he's going to make all things new, it is that he is presently making all things new. And he does so by the power of his Holy Spirit working through his holy people. So we go into the world where there's injustice, we say, be submitted to the king. We do that in prayer. Second Corinthians 10, our weapons are mighty with God for the tearing down of fortresses. Anything that would exalt itself against the authority of God, we tear it down in Jesus' name, powers and principalities, evil and wickedness in high places. We do it with action where there's injustice, poverty, brokenness corruption, trafficking. We work for righteousness with our lives in those places, giving ourselves to those causes because we have a present experience of the ruling and reigning king. And as members of the kingdom, we bring his kingship wherever we go. We live out the purposes of God now. What was said to Paul by Christ is also said to us, Acts 26. Yes, I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power or dominion of Satan to God. We don't just wait for him to come back. We go now to turn people from darkness and light, from the dominion, the kingship, the authority of Satan to the authority of God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith faith. In me? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ as the only true Lord and Savior and King of the universe? Have you put all your hope in Jesus Christ? Is the reality of his return affecting the way that you live today? Are there areas of our lives that are usurping, rebelling against, fleeing from his authority? Lord, give us the grace to bring our lives under your kingship. Reveal to me, reveal to us your righteousness. Show me, show us in our own hearts where your authority is being usurped by my sinfulness, by our own sinfulness. Bring us into good and godly submission before you. And show us in our own cities and in the nations where we can take your kingdom. Where you're already at work restoring, renewing, setting right, healing what is broken. Show us how to be your ambassadors, your ministers. Salt and light in this world for your glory. And God, encourage our hearts today. Encourage our hearts today that you are the soon and coming king. Your church says together, Maranatha. Come quickly, Lord. Prayer team is up here today. If you guys need help with anything whatsoever, communion is here where we proclaim not only his death, but his coming. It says in Corinthians. And the carpets are here that we could bow before so great a king.